What I quickly realized, quite frankly, is that the depth and breadth of what needs to get done on delivering on a zero emissions fleet is well beyond the traditional, just buying the buses and putting them in service. So we created a program management office, and then we took a look at all the different disciplines that were needed. We said, okay, let's all come together and develop these work streams so that how can we move our organization along so we're all marching in the same tune as we get to 2040. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged News and Views this week. Our newsmaker interview is with Craig Cipriano, the former chief operating officer of the New York City MTA. He's going to talk to us about how he spent his career putting people first. Then on the leadership portion of the podcast today, I'll be speaking from my book, Full Throttle, on the chapter I wrote, Putting People First. But first, very interesting news from someone who has continually put people first in his career and his trains, and that is Andy Byford. The former New York City Transit boss, known as Train Daddy, has returned to the United States and he's going to go work for Amtrak. Byford will start his job on April 10th as Senior Vice President for Amtrak's High Speed Rail Program, according to an email announcing his hiring. The memo says he'll be based in Washington, D.C., and will ensure operational strategy alignment between the new HSR, or high-speed rail programs, and our current network. Byford's new gig, which was first reported by Streets Blog, comes six months after he resigned as London's Commissioner of Transport. Amtrak's hiring of Byford comes as the National Railroad is receiving $22 billion in new investment from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Byford joined the MTA in New York City in 2018 after a multi-year decline in the reliability of New York City's subway service. The United Kingdom native had previously run transit systems in Toronto and New South Wales, Australia. It's when he was in Toronto that I got to know him at the same time I was CEO of the MTA in Baltimore. He was our first two-time guest on the Transit Unplugged podcast, uh, one time when he was in the Toronto role, uh, and then another time when he had just gotten into London for his job. And he was talking to me from his apartment overlooking the River Thames. But if you want to hear those podcasts, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. A great guy who really has planned out his career. Uh, and I talk about that some in previous podcasts. And so very happy for him to kind of come back and take over this uh, re responsibility in a national role here in the United States. So for decades, politicians and think tanks have been trying to get high-speed train network to link the country's major metropolitan areas. When I arrived in Baltimore in 2015, there was a study going on about high-speed rail between Baltimore and Washington. There's a group working on it. It received $27 million through the federal government. It's going to follow the Japanese uh, technology of the high-speed rail, which is maglev. Our governor, Larry Hogan, and the secretary of transportation went to Japan to uh, test it out. They came back very impressed. Uh, now it is, uh, I think, seven years later, and it's still being studied. At the time, Vice President Joe Biden and President Barack Obama uh, had announced a sweeping strategic plan for high-speed rail investment, followed by over $50 billion proposed dollars in funding. But 15 years later, we still don't have high-speed rail in the country. There are higher-speed rail, right? So the Mark trains that I ran, which is commuter rail, uh, from Western Maryland and Baltimore into Washington, D.C.'s Union Station, at the time, I believe, were the fastest running trains in America at 132 miles per hour. 
they still have the uh, the Boston to DC Acela run. It's the only Amtrak corridor that's close to be considered high speed rail. But again, it's higher speed rail. When its new rolling stock hits later this year, they're saying the trains can go up to 160 miles per hour, which I believe will be probably the fastest trains in America. But Andy Byford's good at turning things around. And although his work at the MTA was cut short, Byford was credited for his focus on improving frequency and service, as well as infrastructure proposals to modernize the system end to end. You may recall that by the time he exited the the New York City MTA, on-time arrivals had improved from 58% when he got there to 80% when he left. He was putting his pencil to the paper and focusing on improving the performance. And I remember he talked to me about it and said, you know, that's the way to bring people back, right? You build an amazing uh, upgraded system and it'll help people want to ride when it gets them there on time. And while uh, Andy Byford's never focused specifically on high-speed rail, his recent stint at the Transport for London Commissioner may prove instructive. You'll recall that there he oversaw the completion of the long-delayed Elizabeth Line, part of a high-frequency commuter rail system that could serve as a good model for Amtrak's regional connections. Still, Byford will have his work cut out for him. President Biden's vowed to build the safest, cleanest, and fastest rail system in the world. But high-speed rail wasn't necessarily made a funding priority in the recent federal infrastructure bill. And the handful of high-speed rail projects underway elsewhere in the country, as I mentioned, are still struggling. Uh, The one in California is currently under construction in the state's Central Valley, but it's burdened with cost increases and people that are opposed to it trying to derail the project. But our train daddy wanted to come back to the United States. And he said in a text message he sent to the New York Times, I'm excited and humbled to be joining such an American icon. Speaking of Amtrak, quote, I had a number of job offers, but Amtrak and high-speed rail is where I want to be. And I think all of us here in the United States are thrilled that he's back here and wants to work in this area. I think we've got the best chance in a long time of getting operational high-speed rail coming to the United States with him helming the efforts. That's it for the headline news for today. Now stay tuned for our interview with Craig Cipriano, the former COO of New York City MTA, who worked with Andy while he was there and talks about him on today's interview. I'm Paul Comfort with my special guest, Craig Cipriano. Craig served as president of New York City's MTA bus company, leading the nation's largest bus transit agency through the pandemic and setting its strategy to a zero emissions fleet by 2040. He also served as interim president of New York City Transit, leading 50,000 employees at the largest transportation agency in North America with an operating budget of $13 billion. Holy moly, Craig, that's something. That is, that is. (laughs) And now, of course, you've retired, like a lot of us have, and uh, are in the private sector, and you're working with STV, one of the big consulting firms, engineering consulting firms. Great to have you with us today to talk about, I think, what is one of the hottest topics right now is zero emission buses. Uh, And, you know, the electric, battery electric buses are leading the charge. Hydrogen is coming up fast from behind, you know, tried to jump up in there. But you've had quite a long history working in that arena, haven't you? Leading this. How many buses, by the way, did you have there? So we had uh, just just shy of 6,000 buses across 28 locations uh, in New York City. Wow. And and you were leading the charge to move toward electrification, right? Yes. Yeah, so when I came to uh, the head of uh, of the bus company there, you know, we had made a commitment back in 2018 to uh, 2040, you know, zero emission fleet. And, you know, we had some uh, pilot programs going on and we had some work uh, underway. But, you know, what I quickly realized, quite frankly, is that 
you know, the depth and breadth of what needs to get done on a, delivering on a zero emissions fleet uh, is well beyond the traditional, you know, just buying the buses and uh, putting them in service. So, you know, what we did is we took a step back there at the time and we created a, a more comprehensive program management structure. So, you know, we created a program management office and then we took a look at all the different disciplines that were needed. We went to capital planning, we went to operations planning, we went to the operating folks. Of course, we went to the power folks and the facility folks, the vehicle folks. So we put together this structure and we said, okay, let's all come together and develop these work streams so that how can we move our organization along so we're all marching in the same tune as we get to 2040? Because you know, what we really uh, recognize there, especially in a large organization such as New York City Transit, it really comes down to a uh, concerted change management approach. And, and that's how we went about doing it. That's good. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of folks who haven't worked in large agencies may not realize how siloed they are. Uh, I know that I was, um, I was taken back by how siloed the agency that I led in Baltimore was, where you know not only, as you mentioned, is there silos between the different modes, right? So in Baltimore, there's a whole silo for the subway system with their own safety people, their own operations control center, their own management, their own maintenance. And then the same thing with the light rail system, and then the same thing with the bus system, and the same thing with the paratransit, the same thing with commuter rail. They've got their own operation. They're all off on their own with, and never the twain shall meet. Then you get inside a bus and you've got very similar things happening, don't you, Craig? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, every, everyone sort of marches to their uh, own tune, right? Yes, you know, we that's bring, right. Brings, we bring some folks together in a meeting and, uh, you know, start to sort of break down the silos. But, you know, I think in regards to, you know, what you discussed in the zero emission space, it comes down to everyone coming together with that first master plan or transition plan, whatever you want to call it, right? The big picture, holistic transition plan that takes a look at, you know, your, your environmental impacts, your carbon impacts, your resiliency efforts, takes a look at your technical challenges, such as the vehicles, the power, the infrastructure, and your funding, and then also brings some enablers together. You know, a big piece to this, like I said, is the change management or the workforce development that needs to go on, you know, the training. So, you know, today agencies will have diesel mechanics, right? Tomorrow, they're going to be electrical maintainers. Your electrical maintainers on your facilities might become electrical engineers in the future, right? Not many bus operations have a power control center like a rail operation but you know if you're relying on the power grid you know a power control center you know is integral to to making sure that you have that uh, that that service you know what i go back to is my own experience you know after superstorm sandy much of the subway system in new york city was down right especially uh, lower manhattan we were only able to provide uh, some public transportation uh, options because you know our buses at the time ran on diesel fuel so we were able to put together these bus bridges and, and connect people, and it, it brought back a sense of normalcy to the city. But if the bus system relies on that same power grid as the subway or the rail system, you know, then you have an issue. So you know, the redundancy and resiliency built into the program is so integral. That's good. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an important lesson. I've heard other CEOs, at least one in particular, have a very long conversation with me about lessons learned from Hurricane Sandy, and that if the grid went down, his buses, if they were all electric, may not be able to, you know, be serve as uh, getting people out evacuation. And so he was interested in looking at hydrogen and other zero emission fuels as well. So I think that, like you said, taking that holistic view is important. Even in an agency, Craig, talk to me a little bit about this, if you would. Uh, I found um, at the agency I served at and, and at others I've worked with that there's a big division between the engineering department and operations. Talk to us about that. Oh, sure. So I think that's uh, an, a really an age-old challenge 
for public transit agencies, you know, across the country. It's the this sort of the split or the tension between capital delivery and operations, right? So I've seen that, you know, over my 30-year career in New York City Transit, where whether it be a, a new bus depot or whether it be a um, new vehicles, like you said, you know, for some reason, there's not enough collaboration on the front end, right, to provide the uh, ultimate uh, owner on the back end, namely the operating folks, the product that they're expecting or that meets their needs, right? So I think when it comes to the zero emission space, it's more critical than ever that that collaboration happens because quite frankly, I look when I look at this, it really is a transformation for the operation, the, in this case, the, the bus operation, right? It's You got to take a look at your business processes and see where you might need to optimize them. You know, today, for instance, you know, bus comes in the fuel line, you're going to fuel it up, you're going to check the fluids, you know, you're going to tap the tires, take a look at any kind of uh, operated vehicle conditions and put it to bed for the uh, for the night and then get ready to use it for 300 miles or so uh, the next day. Now with zero emission bus, especially in this in this uh, juncture, really before the full maturity of hydrogen fuel cells or that next technology, when you look at battery electric buses, it's a whole different scenario, right? You need to know when you're going to be charging that. If you're looking to charge it all over all the night, yeah, that's that much more power requirements that you need for the facility. If you're looking to do a mix of day and night charges, then you got to optimize the demand charges that you're going to hit during the day when the power utility has uh, peak demand. So again, you know, it really is a big change for the operation. And that's why when I was at New York City Transit, personally, this was what I uh, pushed for was having that program management structure reside in the bus department, reside in the operations, and then reaching back out to the capital delivery folks, the capital planning folks, the operations planning, everybody else. But having the ownership there, because ultimately, you know, the accountability is going to reside on the bus on the bus department side to provide the service. Uh, again, you know, you could look at different models, right? But that's the one that I was that I, uh, you know, operated under. Well, it's funny. I ended up doing the same thing at MTA Baltimore. John Duncan, the chief operating officer, and I made a decision that we were going to let the bus division lead the effort because they had the end, you know, responsibilities, and so. You know, otherwise they could complain, well, I didn't have enough input into the bus p- being put together, the specs and all. So you can't expect me to uh, be held accountable for operating it effectively. So we ended up moving it there and let engineering assist them. But but the buck stopped with them. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm a strong believer in pushing it as close to the front line as possible. I've always have been. I know you believe that, too, Craig. You've had quite a career in transportation. I mean, you started as a mechanical engineering intern. And over 33 years, it ended up as head of the nation's largest transit company. Quite an ascent. Where would you say was um, a pivotal moment? Let's let's switch now from day-to-day operations. I'm interested in your career story for a few minutes. Sure, sure. About your career that made that journey a reality. Sure. So, uh, so yeah. So, you know, back in 1989, I came to transit as a mechanical engineer intern in the subways department. A few years later, I got uh, into a management training program that the MTA was sponsoring, and I moved over to the bus side. And then, you know, I was really uh, in middle management for the, for the most of my career from then till about the early 2000s, working in a variety of bus depots throughout New York City. And again, I came to a sort of a point in my career where, you know, at that time, there was sort of an unwritten rule that unless you started as a mechanic or a bus operator, you can only go so far in uh, operations leadership at the, at the MTA. So I sort of hit a glass ceiling at the time. And I said to myself, well, well, what's next? You know, I think I, I have more to give. And, you know, I didn't really know what to do at the time. I, I looked on the outside a little bit, looked on some of the job postings at the MTA. Ultimately, I decided to go back to school and get my master's of uh, city and regional planning uh, and, and a concentration of transportation. 
And quite frankly, my eyes open, you know, just going back to school, you know, up until then, I was under the impression that, uh, you know, public transit was all about pushing buses out the door by 9 a.m. and then pushing them back out by uh, 4 p.m., right? And that was it. But when I, when I went back to school, I realized there's a whole multi-billion dollar industry that's behind, that's behind, you know, making that happen. And uh, really opened my eyes, looked at the, looked at the space a lot more uh, comprehensively, holistically, and it opened up some doors to me at uh, at New York City Transit. You know, the only thing I want I like to add there for uh, some future leaders is that, you know, during my career, you know, while I, while I was lucky enough to ascend to the top, you know, it didn't all come uh, easy, right? So you know, you gotta you gotta understand and know that there's going to be some ups and downs during that career, right? Um, you know, you're going to take some interviews. You're not going to get that job. You're going to think you're the most qualified. You're not going to be uh, the most fulfilled in this current job. But what I would offer is that don't ever allow that to, to stop you, right? Go, you know, have your, have your vision, know where you want to go and keep pushing, right? Whether that means going back to school, whether that means, um, you know, maybe spending a couple extra hours, you know, going into the bus depots of the world to learn operations on your own whether that means to, to sort of seek out some informal or formal mentorship from the, from folks that could help you, just go at it. You know, what I found is, uh, you know, public transit really is, uh, there's a world of opportunity and it's very fulfilling if you make what you want to make out of it. That's great. Uh, in my first book, Full Throttle, I've got a chapter called Don't Despise the Day of Small Beginnings. And talk about how that, you know, if you are in a position where you feel like it's not utilizing your full capacity, uh, look around and find what you can learn during that role, right? So if you are, you know, to switch the analogies to, let's say you're in the belly of a big coal burning ship, you know, at sea in the 1800s, right? And you're there shoveling coal in there and you're like, crap, man, I hate this job. I want to be the captain. Well, learn everything you can about how the engine works. And then when an opportunity, right? Isn't that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there was a time in my career where I was, uh, the title was General Superintendent of Support Services, which really was the administrative manager for the bus depot. But what I would tell you is, you know, I probably spent more time on the shop floor talking to uh, mechanics, you know, and, you know, uh, uh, the dispatches and the, and the bus operators. In other words, while I was responsible for administration, I made sure that, I, you know, I expand my scope because I knew I didn't want to just do the administrative part for the rest of my career. Yes. So, so I got, took that opportunity to learn the operations. And I think that's what you're saying, Paul. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Um, Andy Byford, who, uh, you know, was your, was he, were you there when he was there? Yes, he was uh, my boss and a mentor of mine, for sure. Yeah, great guy. Um, and I've, I've got to know him over the last uh, probably like 10 years. He was head of Toronto when I was head of Baltimore. And so I went up to his office and we talked and uh, we spoke at APTA conferences, et cetera. And I've interviewed him a couple of times. And Craig, it's interesting that his career, he really curated it, uh, which I thought was different than what I did. And I'm sure he told you this, but uh, you know, he chose, okay, I'm going to go in safety for a while. Now I'm going to go in operations for a while. Now I'm going to go in this for a while. Whereas, you know, my career has been more like, you know, swimming down a river and going where the current takes me. And uh, so I think that talks to, though, what you're talking about. In each opportunity I've had, I've tried to learn more so that it prepared me for the next thing. But he had more of a, you know, a definite plan to, that, to know that, you know, I'm not going to spend 30 years in bus maintenance or in bus safety or in bus operations or in engineering. I'm going to move around. If I want the top job, I need to understand how this whole thing runs. Would you agree with that approach? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but I didn't take that same, same approach as Andy, which, you yeah. know, in looking back, you know, probably uh, putting together that game plan, you know, would probably have been helpful. But, you know, I was the benefactor of a management training program 
that most people, uh, an overwhelming majority of people are not. So I'm really very lucky in that regard. The, the program back in 1992 that I went in was called the Future Managers Program. And part of the, uh, the setup of that program was a two-year program was rotating job assignments. And I think that's what you're getting at. Well, Andy, you know, did it on his own. He went into the safety department and yes. the safety department. This gave me the opportunity for a three-month stint to work in many of the different departments within New York City Transit, specifically buses. And what that really did for me when, when I graduated from their program is two things. Number one is I got exposure to many, to many of the people there. So they knew me, I knew them. And, you know, as you know, Paul, this is a people business. So the Absolutely. more people- Absolutely. It's all about people, relationships, baby. Exactly. The more people you know, <laughs> and you know who to pick up the phone, um, you know, the, the better help you can. And then the other thing was it allowed me to connect the dots, right? So if you're always in your own silo, it's hard to connect the dots. How does the capital planning people fit into- you know, making, pushing the buses out the door or the safety or, or anybody else. But working alongside them, I was able to connect those dots better and help me uh, down the road as I became, uh, you know, more of a mid and upper uh, level leadership in the organization. We're nearing the end of the interview, but a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, the week this airs, I'll be in Nashville at our Think Transit conference and I'll be hosting a bunch of CEO panels. One of them is with eight brand new CEOs with under a year under their belt. Uh, and I want to ask you to tell them and other new CEOs, give us some input and some advice as they are struggling with, you know, the tough fiscal decisions that are happening, their own career development and succession planning programs. Sure. So, so what, I've, what I would say is that uh, in regard to these tough fiscal decisions that we're in, uh, especially post-pandemic, you know, I've seen budget crises for 33 years of my 33 years in New York City Transit. Yeah. I know this one's a little bit different. I, I get that because, you know, again, I'm just coming uh, out of the, of, of the agency. But, and in those 33 years of these budget crises, what we always tend to do because of the urgency of the time is prioritize, rightfully so, state of good repair and service, right? You have to do that. But what we can't continue to do, which we've done, is keep cutting these needed people programs, right? The workforce development, the succession planning. I think we all found ourselves in a position here in our industry where, you know, there was a dearth of future leaders, quite frankly, right? Because we haven't, we haven't been investing in the people the same way we're investing in the infrastructure. So, so what I would say is as best we can continue to invest in our people. Again, you know, we've said it uh, earlier in the conversation, we're in a people business, right? We move people. We don't move freight or cargo. We move our customers of people. And the people that make it happen are our most valued resource. We got to continue to invest in our people amidst these other crises that we need to solve for. I think that's great advice. In the end, that's who's running the service is the people, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can't, you know, I found uh, when I was uh, leading, you know, both the bus and then acting in New York City Transit, every single time I made it out of my ivory tower, and got onto the shop floor or, or drove in the subway car and was speaking to those frontline employees was the, was the best time of my of, of my career. The best times of on my days, I should say. Yes, the best yeah. days was when I was talking to the people that are making it happen day in and day out. Not only are they just so happy to see you out there, but they provide you a wealth of information that is you know useful in in your decision making. Absolutely, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I was, uh, I just taught a class to CEOs at the Southwest Transit Association a couple months ago. And I was asking some of my CEO friends, cause it was going to be class on top 10 traits of CEOs. And I asked some friends of mine who are CEOs now, you know, do you have any input you want to give? And, and Noah Berger suggested up from near Boston. He said, yeah, get on the bus, get on the train, get out of your office. And just what you said, Craig, great way to end today's show is 
uh, an admonition to leaders in transit to ride the services that you're in charge of. You'll learn so much. Craig, this is, we could have talked for another hour. You got some great experience. I'll have to invite you to write a chapter in my, re, my remake of Full Throttle. I'm sure you've got some great stories to tell. Sounds great, Paul. I'd love to. I'd love thanks, to. Thanks for uh, being our guest today on Transit Unplugged. And thanks for the service that you've given to our industry over the last 30 some years and continue Thank to you. give in your new role. Thank you for having me. I had a lot Absolutely. of fun. Hi. I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Let's talk for a minute about the importance of brand and how communicating a clear brand identity can make a difference for your transit agency. Brands are about safety. I don't mean safety in the sense that we use it in public transit, though that kind of safety can support your brand. What I mean is that brands make the public believe they already know how using your brand will make them feel and that makes your brand a safe choice when users have other options. Communicating your brand involves a couple of different elements. The first is a clear visual identity that is displayed on vehicles, facilities, and throughout your communications universe, from your social media to letterhead. A clear visual identity includes graphic design that communicates what your service does and ties it to the region and user base. For example, the Verdi shuttle provides service from the leafy town of Cottonwood, Arizona, to the high desert of Sedona, and its graphic design displays a shift from green to red. Maybe you remember Paul's interview with Noah Berger a few weeks ago. Noah works with the Miramac Valley Regional Transit Authority, now branded as MEVA. Their new visual identity weaves in both natural and industrial elements from their region, including rivers and clock towers. The language you use to communicate your brand is just as important as how your brand looks. Friendly language can make your customers feel closer to your brand. More authoritative or straightforward diction could make your audiences feel more secure. How you choose to speak to your audiences requires that you know them and understand their needs. This might mean you need to conduct regular audience surveys or focus groups. Finally, while communicating a consistent brand identity is very important, Delivering a false promise will ruin your brand for years to come. If you're promoting your transit brand as safe, clean, efficient, and reliable, can you stand behind those brand promises on the service side? And are you ready for reform if you can't? If you'd like to talk more about communicating brand identity or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Hey, this is Paul Comfort. Thanks for sticking with us today on the Transit Unplugged podcast, the world's leading transit executive podcast heard now in 130 countries around the world. Also, hopefully you're enjoying watching our Transit Unplugged TV show. We had close to 20,000 views now on our most recent episode, uh, going viral for our industry, I'd say. And it's, uh, it's an episode that covers my recent visit to Singapore. It's on YouTube. Just type in Transit Unplugged TV. Take a, take a watch and let us know what you think about it. On the podcast this year, we are focusing on leadership development. We've had some great leaders on talking about leadership development, including folks like Stephen M. R. Covey. It's been a great focus, and I've heard from many of you that you're really enjoying it. We plan to keep it going all year long. Lately, we've been having some transit uh, leaders and leadership development folks who focus on one specific aspect of leadership. I'm going to shift now and actually do some book reviews. But I have some folks who are in my orbit talk about some of the greatest leadership books they've read lately and lessons they learned. Maybe it'll help you build a reading list. So I'm going to do that today, but I'm actually going to read to you from my book, the first book, 
full throttle, living life to the max with no regrets. I wrote this shortly after I finished up my time at the MTA in Baltimore CEO. And I had many lessons I had learned over 30 years in the public transit industry. And I wanted to share them with folks. I had been doing so. I'd been writing articles for magazines and, and, uh, and actually doing leadership development courses and classes for our employees and for others who asked me to come in and speak at their organization, which I continue to do. And uh, I'm happy to do that for your group, by the way. If you've got a, uh, a group of leaders together in your transit agency or company, and you'd like me to come in, no charge. I'd be happy to drop into a staff meeting for 20 minutes one day and give some talks on leadership and lessons I've learned in my career and what's happening now with transit trends, anything like that, just let me know. Drop me a line at paul.comfort at medaxo.com. So full throttle was 21 life lessons that I'd learned in my effort to give it my all, full throttle. I also invited nine other CEOs to give their takes on things they had learned over the years. One big lesson. It's a great book. I really think that, uh, that you'd enjoy it if you get a chance to look at it. So today I'm going to read to you from chapter 16 from the book, and it is putting people first, which is my principle. And at the end of the chapter, I give you my formula for leadership development. And I think if you talk to folks I've worked with over the years, most of them would tell you that it was very effective and they really enjoyed leading in this environment that it created. Chapter 16, page 85 from Full Throttle. Put people first. Hitting on all eight cylinders is a phrase I often use to describe a moment when all the team members are using their full abilities. They feel great about coming to work every day and are accomplishing the goals set out for them individually and as a group. I believe it normally takes about a year or more to go through the four stages of organizational development, which are form, storm, norm, and perform, to get your team to this important phase. If possible, I like to bring a few members from with me from my previous leadership team to my new employer's team. Metaphorically speaking, they become a sort of leaven that can transfer the rising ingredients from the old to the new lump of dough from which we build our top performing teams. I have seen that focusing on this type of team building as a top priority helps you meet your target profitability and performance goals faster and better than if you put your whole focus on cost control, loss prevention, and efficiency measures up front. Because in the end, it is these leaders who are helping you meet your target goals. So what's the difference between Kmart and Walmart? Both were started the same year in the same state and sell basically the same things. One, however, went on to become the biggest company in the early 2000s, and the other went bankrupt. I would argue that the difference was the management leadership team. When you as a leader empower a team of entrusted colleagues to take full responsibility with the accompanying authority over their departments, and you protect them from the slings and arrows from above, you create a winning dynamic that will allow them to build success for you and your agency or company. However, in most companies and government agencies, the politics of just trying to keep your job and career take precedence and often end up being the primary focus of your job. When that occurs, the cortisol hormones of fight or flight dominate the workplace and everyone acts like a gazelle waiting for the lions to pounce. Heads are up, looking around for danger, worrying, and not focused on the task at hand. Unfortunately, there's way too much wasted time and effort expended in this state of distress throughout the vast bureaucracies of corporate, government, and quasi-government America. I dare you to be different. Here is my formula. Build a team. 
work to earn their trust, and then protect them. Pick team leaders that demonstrate three primary skill sets, competence, dedication, and loyalty. Share information with them and give them real authority over their responsibilities. Agree with them on the goals they are shooting for and the boundaries they must stay within. And then provide them the freedom to choose how to accomplish the mission using their own creativity while holding them accountable for iterative improvement moving toward the end goal and producing results. Then watch them achieve. You will be remembered as one of the best bosses they ever had. I challenge you to put people first, and I believe profits will follow. That's it from chapter 16 of my book. Hopefully uh, some of that spoke to you. If it did, let us know. And if you have a lesson that you've learned in leadership, or you have a great book that you've read recently that had some leadership lessons and you'd like to share it with our Transit Unplugged family, drop us a note at the email address that Tris gives you at the end of the show. We'd be happy to hear from you and consider your request. Thanks again for being with us each and every week on Transit Unplugged. If it's Wednesdays, it's Transit Unplugged. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our special guest, Craig Cipriano, National Director of Zero Emissions Mobility at STV. Coming up next week on Transit Unplugged In-Depth, we have Andy Thompson, Managing Director of Go Ahead Singapore. Don't forget to visit transitunplugged.com, sign up for the newsletter. They're always in the loop with whatever's going on with the show. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe, ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.